All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wandering Bear Sports Podcast, the number one sports podcast, maybe just podcast on planet Earth at this point. It's good to be back. Been a little bit of a crazy period for me. There's a lot going on in life, and we had the Shoot Shield trial period. Round one's done, leading into round two this week. Bit of a short week, so it's... uh, it's good to be back on the treadmill that is the Shoot Shield rugby season. Boys are tracking nicely and we've seen some good growth so far. Anyway, before I get into this week's podcast, uh, please would like to acknowledge our sponsors, Caffeine Gum Australia. Without Caffeine Gum, I don't know what I would be doing right now. So please continue to support it. Uh, it's got 100 milligrams of caffeine per piece. It's batch tested, so it's used by elite sporting teams all over Australia, and it tastes really good as well. So if you want to feel good all the time, try Caffeine Gum at www.caffeinegumaustralia.com. All right, this podcast was recorded about three weeks ago, but I'm just getting it out now. So that that's just to provide some context to the conversation. We just had a trial against West Harbour. Their head coach is an old teammate of mine and an old former opponent. He's a great man, Cam Trelaw. Um, it's his first year as a head coach. He had a long professional career playing in the top 14 in France. Uh, he also played for the Reds when Eddie Jones was coaching there. And his other job is as a police officer. So we talked about that as well. Some really interesting insights, and I really, really enjoyed this conversation. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Cam Trelaw. Okay, we're live. Tree, thanks very much for doing this, mate. I've wanted to do this with you for a long time, and i um, very grateful that you found the time to sit down with me. Uh, firstly, we had a trial on the weekend. It was good to see you. I, I thought there was a lot of positives for both teams. How did you reflect after? Was that your first trial game? Uh, that was our first trial game against other people. We'd had an internal the week before. Um, yeah, we were originally slated to play Gordon, but they they took their top thirty away on a camp, so it sort of forced us into an internal. Um, it, it made a lot, it made a big difference playing against somebody else. So I think the guys found it a lot easier to you know with internal trials. It's always tough to get up for um, and. The second you make a call, everybody opposite you knows exactly what's happening. And yeah. so they shoot to exactly where you're going to be and it turns into an absolute chip fight. But, um, yeah, I, I think we got a lot out of it. I think both teams got a lot out of that trial. I, I remember someone at the, the – might have been Nathan Gray said that a, a trial is as good as two weeks' worth of training. And I never appreciated that as a player because I just hated unnecessary games, particularly as I got older. But as a coach, you go – uh, he's he's absolutely right. Like, there's a bunch of things that you, that you can only learn from playing games. Did you do you, do you feel the same way now that you're a head coach that it's a, a valuable learning experience for you about how to plan the next couple of weeks and some things you want to work on going forward into the season? Yeah, very much so. I mean, you think you look, you think of of when you're training and everything you everything you put into place has some sort of control factor on it. Um, even when you're trying to implement chaos. You're, you're controlling how you implement it, whereas, whereas in a game you have no control on what's happening opposite you. you. You you're basically having to react to everything in front of you. Whereas at training we're trying to put these stimulus in that um, create a game, but it's still us creating the stimulus. Whereas in a game 
they have to react. They have to have to see what's in front of them and play what's in front of them. And and I think it's invaluable. Mate, yeah, particularly you throw in some some refs and country rugby and you know whole change of environment. It's uh, I've been loving the last couple of weeks. We've been we've been hitting around some of the local country clubs around the Hunter, and it's it just takes you back to when you were young, traveling around New South Wales playing country footy. It's just it's just fantastic, mate. It's just fantastic. I was saying to Hilly the other night, you forget we forget we you know we we've driven two hours up to Newcastle, but. Hilly and I are both country boys um, as well. And so you remember, like, we, I used to play at nine o'clock in the morning in Batemans Bay and I travelled from Cooma to Batemans Bay, yeah. just three hours. That means we had to leave at six in the morning to get there for my 9 a.m. game under 10s, which would go for 40 minutes. And you um, don't even question it. Not even, no, nah, not even a thought. And it's just what you do because that's, you know, Australia's a big country and when you're going from town to town, there's a lot of space in between. And now I think our closest game was Bombala, which is an hour away still. Um, and all the other teams are down the south coast. So um, you just don't question it. It's what you do. And country, that's what I love about country rugby. And everyone still stays around for a beer after the game, regardless of the four-hour trip at the back end of it. Um, yeah, it's it's funny. Like, uh, I'm living in Cronulla, but doing the forwards for the wildfires. So sometimes it can be a three-hour trip each way. Um, so it's a lot of driving. But I, growing up in Coffs Harbour, you drive two hours for uh, an hour training session to Port Macquarie. So it's... You know, it's not unusual, and a lot of the Sydney people don't fully appreciate that. That a country country guys will travel to play footy or train, and you know, there's a good culture around it. And and I think we often we often in Sydney, and, and I definitely do. I I go for a forty minute drive, but I'm stuck in traffic for that forty minutes, so I feel like I've gone nowhere, and I'm getting, I'm getting angry. But if yeah. I'm three three hours of open road, I'm happy as Larry, which is bizarre because it's, it's still the the time that you lose, but I don't feel I don't feel like it's wasted when I'm actually moving. But when I'm stuck in traffic, I feel like it's an absolute waste of time. About hundred percent. Hey, so you've just become head coach of West Harbour, first head coaching gig. You obviously had a long career as a player and have been an assistant coach previously. Can you give a brief or a long overview, if you want, of your your playing history and then transitioning into coaching and basically how you how you got to this position as the head coach of West Harbour. Yeah, look, I um, I, I like I was saying, grew up in the country and then and went to Joey's. Um, and out of Joey's, went straight to straight to the Rats in in Colts in 1999. Um, and we had a really strong Colts group that year. Um, you know, we had Michael Lidman went on to play for England. We had a number of guys went on to play professionally. Um, and and it was. Hands down, still the funnest year of rugby I ever had was my 99 Colts year. We everything we did together Thursday night was together after training, Saturday night was together. We're all on our double denim, um, jeans and denim shirts every single week. Um, and it, it was fantastic. And, um, so I, I, I went from there, I had a year down at the Brumbies Academy the year after that, um, which was pretty injury plagued and and. I got to luckily play the final two games, oh, final probably four games of this season, and we and we won the Colts comp with Canberra that year. And and again, that was with with good players, you know, Maddie Henjack and and a number of guys who again went on to be professionals. Um, back up to the Rats, and and we were a very young, um, very young first grade group to the point where we in two thousand and two we we lost to 
Randwick 101 to 21. Um, and but we that group stayed pretty tight and that group stayed together and, and went through to the 2005 Shoot Shield, which is which was a, a highlight of, the, of of that sort of era for us, even though there was the Tui's New Cup back then. But you know, the Tui's New Cup's a doorstop somewhere now, so um, yeah, um. Graduated from there up into I had sort of two and a half years up at the Reds, um, which was an indifferent couple of years for me playing wise. Um, over to Italy for three years, France for another four years, and and then <clears throat> back to back to Australia where I crossed paths with you again at the uh, Country Eagles, and then um, a couple of years off and back for a final swan song in 2017 at the Rats for the, um, which, which ended up in a shoot shield, which was again, one of our, my, you know, my best memories of rugby. Um, and the, the, the path into coaching wasn't always or ever on the cards. Um, sorry, mate. Yeah, mate. The, uh, I, I didn't have any great designs on coaching and, um, 2018, I, I probably tried to go down when I shouldn't have. Um, they'd moved on. Benny Benny McCormack was sports coach. Um, they still had DC. Um, Riv was down there doing skills, and I sort of hung hung on and ended up doing a, a lot of sort of um, bit part coaching. But it was more more just so I could stay involved. And and but I got great value out of um, coaching the lower grade guys. I really really enjoyed that, and and that sort of gave me the bug. It wasn't so much being involved with the first grade because I didn't do much with them. Um, but I really, really enjoyed coaching the lower grade guys. They were they were great. Um, and fast forward to the year after, uh, Benny moved over to Randwick and, and, the, and the Ford spot opened up and um, Gerardo was good enough to give me the opportunity. And again, I don't know how much coaching I did that year because we had such a set, strong group. Um, we made the grand final and unfortunately lost to uni just at the back end of it when they, they were able to roll out Tolulatu and Angus Bell into the scrum and we just couldn't quite match that. Um, but 2020 was probably my biggest learning curve of a year, which was the first affected COVID year, but it was also as we started to bring a few new players in that weren't part of that settled 2017, 18, 19 group. Um, and that's where I first had to start to coach and, made a million mistakes um and and we weren't a settled group that year i think we had the guys at the back end of the of their careers were you know busy with other things you know they're starting businesses having families and, and all of those other things whereas three years prior earning earning their money so they could service their footy was their main goal um and so we're just in that we're just in that real transition period what kind of mistakes did you? What kind of mistakes did you make? I think it's uh, I think it's valuable to talk about because uh, a lot a lot of people look at failure as you know a bad thing or making mistakes as a bad thing, but everyone makes mistakes and and learning from mistakes actually leads to success. Can you recall anything that you did that stood out to you? Yeah, I think I definitely um, over coached. I, I I think because. We'd had the really successful season the year before. Um, I thought what I was doing was was really good, but the reality is, I what I was doing was probably only sub was probably average. Um, but I had such a good group of players that 
they were able to mask it. Whereas the year after, we had a new player, so I overcoached and 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 probably tried to go too far the other way of being full coach and not enough friend. Whereas I probably, but because I was I was coaching guys I'd played with. Um, I said, oh, no, no, I need to be coach. I need to be hard on these guys. I need to be hard. And I'm having to, you know, call guys out uh, probably unnecessarily in front of the group as a way of trying to show, you know, I'm a coach. I'm not your mate. I'm your... But it was probably, I probably went too far that way. Yeah. Um, so I remember a video session where I could have easily, easily solved it with a, just a, an individual video. But I, I felt the need to show the group. And it was, I, you know, I was calling out Wardy, who I deeply respected. Um, it just wasn't necessary, yeah, but I, I was trying to overcoach and trying to trying to say I'm not your friend anymore. I'm your coach, um, and I don't think I needed to. I think I was, I was more than happy to go, mate. You can do better than this, and leave it at that. I didn't need to, you know, do a public shaming. Um, yeah, and it didn't it didn't go down well with him, and and I don't think it especially landed with the group either. So, um, lesson learned. How how did you? So once you worked out that that was a mistake, did you? Did you address it? Did you go go to him and go, look, man, I'm I'm sorry. I, like, how did you how did you address uh, it? No, that's probably mistake number two. I didn't I didn't address it. Um, I, I probably didn't realize it was a mistake till a year later when right. Wardy was retiring and and coming back and, and and he started to come back at the back end of the season just to just to play some really enjoyable, fun footy. Um, and then I realized I didn't I didn't need to do that. I didn't need to make him feel like that. I didn't need to make the awkwardness in the room. Um, but, I, but I never addressed it with him. So um, probably, yeah, mistake number two. Well, if he's listening, Wardy, he's a great man. Sorry, Sam. An outstanding rugby player as well. <laughs> Mate, go, going back to your playing career, talk talk to me about the two years at the Reds. I've, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, that was a bit of a transitional period for the Reds. They weren't having a lot of success during that time. Was was that it was roughly when Eddie was coaching them, wasn't it? Yeah. So the first year, uh, year and a half, I'd say we had so we had Jeff Miller and Damon Intage uh, and Alec Evans, who were the, the three main coaches. Um, I'd just come, I'd done the Waratahs tour to Argentina the year before, and and then we did another tour to Argentina with the Reds. Um, I think having done that tour previously. I went into the next tour really, really confident and and I, I had a really good tour, played some of my best footy I'd played in, in a couple of years. Um, they were very, very, you know, happy with with how I was going. Um, had a really good pre-season up until Christmas and then the Wallabies rejoined rejoined our group and I went to water. I fell to pieces. Um, it, and that's, that's probably where I first learned how important the mental side of the game is um and how important confidence was to me um i played far better when i believed in myself when i was confident um and just that small change of bringing in these guys who were uh, in, in many cases guys I'd, I'd lined up to take photos with um yeah. that that really knocked my confidence around and, and then self-doubt crept in and i i couldn't i, I had a period there where i couldn't catch a ball uh, and uh, luckily enough, they stuck with me, and I ended up getting a few super games that year. And um, 
but it was a really strange period. And then I, I built my confidence back up by the end of that season. I felt like I was playing good footy again. And then, and then Eddie joined the team. Um, he, he'd been sacked from the Wallabies that season, come straight back into the Reds. Um, I think, you know, you read his book and by his own admission, he certainly didn't do his best coaching in that period. Um, yeah. And he really, like looking back on it, Taught me, taught me a lot, but at the time it felt like we were we were butting heads a lot, um, and I just didn't feel like he got me or understood where I'd come from. But looking back on everything he said to me was right. There was, um, which was probably a few things to unpack here, but he 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 really taught me what being a professional footy player was, um, whereas I thought it was getting paid to do the work that I was already doing. Um, yeah. And I wasn't good enough to be that person. I wasn't good enough to be to, to just do the work I was already doing. I needed to do way more work. Um, and that, the only reason I'd, I'd ever got to that point was because I probably was one of the hardest workers in the room. Um, but then all of a sudden I got to where I wanted to get to and stopped being that person. Um, and it took sort of some very harsh conversations with Eddie to make me realise that. So there's a bit to unpack there. The, I, think, I feel like the, the confidence thing, is quite common. I certainly had it uh, for, through my brief experiences in professional rugby, and I think it's why I didn't go further, is because I probably was good enough, but when I got there, I didn't feel like I was good enough and went back into my shell a little bit and probably didn't put my best foot forward um, as a player, as someone preparing, or as a person, really, because I was a bit... There, there's a word for it. I can't think of it, but it's... Uh, where you don't think you're good enough to be in, in that group. Imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. And and look, I I still have it as a coach sometimes and, and you feel like, well, why are these guys listening? But I think it's it's I something a, that I'm a little bit now. Like I listen to your podcast and listen to the people you've spoken to um, who are highly accomplished coaches and, and you're chatting to me who I'm very, very far from accomplished. I haven't accomplished anything. But um, so, you know, like it's, it's slightly intimidating knowing you've, you've spoken to Wayne Smith and Anthony Seabold and guys like that. Um, but, yeah, like it's, it's a big part of confidence and, and getting over that is a big part of um, probably day-to-day life. How, how did you – so after you left the Reds, how did you learn to deal with that? Because you went on to have a really good career in Europe. Played some really good footy. Was it something that you've just, did you speak to someone or was it just that over the years you, you came to work out how to deal with that and address it? Yeah, I, I funnily enough, it's probably a lot of the lessons that Eddie was giving me at the time that I I didn't understand that I, that I was then able to put in place throughout the rest of the time. Um, you know, like he... he He'd sit there and say, you need to be down there at training minimum half an hour before working on your skills. You need to be just doing that all the time. And so I'd go down and do it all the time um, at the Reds. But the reason I'd be doing it was so Eddie could see me doing it. I wasn't even concentrating on getting better. I just wanted Eddie to see me doing what I was meant to be doing. Yeah. And I guess I kind of got into that habit, though. So when I got over to Italy and over into France, I still kept doing that. But I was actually doing it to get better. Um, yeah, it was, again, it was one of those things. Is like, why didn't I realise what he was trying to tell me at the time? 
I, I had an interesting chat. So I've been doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu for a bit and it's highly recommend to anyone. And uh, I, I always talk to the coach about coaching because he's a brilliant coach. He's been involved with some very, very good jiu-jitsu athletes. And he said to me, one of the biggest lessons that he learned is that he would be teaching a technique and he'd go over it and over it. And some guys just weren't getting it. And he said what he worked out was that some people just aren't ready for that lesson. They'll, they'll, when they're ready for the lesson, it'll make sense to them. But that person just might not be ready for what I'm trying to teach them. And I, and cause I'm probably, I'm very hard on myself and I'm going, oh, well, I'm coaching this. I'm, you know, they're not getting it. Fuck, I'm terrible. But sometimes people just aren't ready for that lesson. Yeah. And, and, and definitely how, like, I mean, it probably makes you reflect a little bit on how you teach that lesson. And, and while, while the lesson was probably good, the the way I was getting it was, mate, you're not good enough. You're at an academy level. What are you doing here? Um, which was I? Well, maybe I was. Maybe I wasn't. But that's how. That's the message I was getting. Um, so where do I where do I take that? And what 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 lesson am I getting out of that? Um, there's probably a, there's probably a better way for me to get to the same point. Um, yeah without the self-doubt and, the, and the, the questioning myself all the time. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, 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 I reckon Eddie's approach has probably changed over the years as, as um, you know, more of an understanding of psychology and humans has evolved that, that sometimes people need an arm around them and sometimes people need a clip over the ear and just, just working out uh, what works for that person. Tell me, about, tell me about France, mate. What was that experience like? Um, how did you develop as a human there? Just some reflections on your time over there. Uh, um, that, that that period was some of the funnest rugby I played. I started that, that in Bayonne, which was which is a, a one town team. Um, we have Beeritz, which are our direct next door neighbours. Effectively, it's the same town, but Beeritz and Bayonne are split by Anglet. Um, so there's that huge, big rivalry. They they pack the crowd, they pack the stands out. They sing these amazing Basque songs. Um, it also was my first insight into the volatility of, of French footy. Um, our our entire assistant staff got sacked. Bernard Bernard Laporte came in as our director of rugby uh, midway through the season. Um, saw me play one game, said, nope, no thanks, and um, moved me on to Bordeaux, um, which was a deal done between the two presidents that I didn't know about. So I basically said, you can go to Bordeaux or you can stay here, see out your contract, but you will not play. And so, you know, <laughs> it was a, it was an option yeah. without an option. Yeah. Um, it ended up being the absolute best thing that could have happened to me. So Bordeaux at the time were in Pro D2, uh, Bayonne were in top 14. Um, what I saw at the back end of that season with Bordeaux and we got promoted into the top 14. Um, and we got promoted with a group that did not have, whereas Bayonne had a lot of superstars. You know, we had Troy Flavel, we had Craig Gow, we had um, three or four of the French internationals and a lot of guys who, you know, had played upper echelon footy, whereas um, Bordeaux we were completely different. We were, were a, a bunch of journeymen who could just buy into being the being the underdogs, um, and you know we we finished we finished seventh that that first season in top fourteen, which considering our budget was sort of eight million dollars less than everybody else's. Um, it's remarkable. It was a yeah, really good achievement. Um, and we played 
really good footy. Um, and we and we had to play a certain way because of our, you know, you know, we get into level threes and fours and talk about our, our team profile, but we were a light, um, a light small team. So we just had to move the ball around a lot. Which um, would have been quite different during that era over there, wouldn't it? Very much so. It was, you know, they always the big thing was talk about combat, combat. Um, so it was they wanted to take they wanted to maul everything. They wanted to take everything into the teeth of a, into the teeth of the fence and try and b- break down the walls. Whereas we, by by necessity, had to go around the wall. Um, and so yeah, you know, we played some really enjoyable footy um, over that period. And and going from Bayonne, which was a one town team where everyone knew who the players were, to Bordeaux, which was very much a soccer town, um, and no one knew who we were. Um, we could just go out and have everything Bordeaux had to offer. Um, Not a bad part of the world either, by the way. Amazing, amazing town. <laughs> um, really enjoyed it. And, you know, we had a good bunch of guys who were, was, had settled long-term in France. So, you know, they had the, they bought their houses and they will bring up their families there so we could go and have the Sunday barbecues together at a, at a you know, an established house. It wasn't like a footy house with big piece furniture and, we, you know, guys were making their lives there. Um Oh, yeah, I absolutely love that period. I cherish it. Um, I can't. I'm going to go back for the World Cup this year, and I can't wait to go back and visit these guys. And um, yeah, I, I love that period. What did you learn about being a second rower playing in France? I think that changed. I I thought I understood the set piece before I got over there. I thought um, I thought my set piece work was pretty sound and. It, Oh, the first, the first sort of harsh lesson I got was on a on a almost a frozen field in in Italy, um, and I offered offered Ciccio, who was our forwards coach, and was also went on to be the Italian forwards coach. Um, offered him some some ideas that we'd been using at the Reds, and he basically said, uh, "Thank you, but I will not be taking scrum advice from Australian," and um, and. It was just the sheer amount of work we get through in those in those unit sessions. It was they were long and they'd be an hour and a half to two hours of pure scrum and more, scrum and more, scrum and more. And um, that so that Tuesday morning session, we wouldn't even see the backs. We would just there'd be no there'd be your set piece is your your bread and butter here, and this, you want to spend a, an enormous amount of time on it. And so we'd do that on a, on a Tuesday and then we'd also get another hour on a Thursday pure, purely devoted to set piece, um, which, you know, is a dream as a coach now. I wish I could be able to do the same. How much of that's necessary? Uh, <clears throat> to, to get it to a level you, of, of excellence, I think most of it, like, and again, it comes back to confidence, to, to be able to have confidence in the body of work you've put in during the week. Um, you know, we're sort of restricted, like uh, restricted to a twenty-five minute block, and and you wonder do players go into the game going, have we done enough? Have we, have we got enough behind us? Um, and you can only do what you can do. Um, yeah. But you, we could go into we could go into a, a top fourteen game and go, you know, we've 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 done two hours of scrums this week, and our scrum isn't the biggest, but we've done an enormous amount of work, and we we know at very least we'll hold in there against this bigger pack. It's um it's it's funny you say that uh, uh we played we're in the last week and Bubba's comment to me after the game was well we've we did really well in the stuff that we've done a lot of work on 
which is 100% accurate. Like what you what you work on is genuinely good. It's I, I guess the battle for community or semi-professional coaches is working out what your biggest bang for buck items are to win games and then spending more time on that. But we'll talk we'll talk about that. Well, you you mentioned some of the coaching courses. We've just gone through a couple together. One of the things that they consistently bring up is coaching philosophy. Now, I, I preface this. I haven't really sat down and, and nutted mine out and worked out what it is. Ha, have you done that? Do you have some guiding principles that you that you run everything through? Or you've been Mate, like, I, still working it out? I, I think I'm probably more on your side. I'm still working it out. I, I've, I've got one. Um, it was mine is probably was because it was part of the application process for the level four. And yeah. so, I mean, I, I've sort of got it down as service enjoyment standards and skill. And I sort of see my role is to service the ambitions and the desires and the um, the want of my players to get better. And, and um, obviously an enjoyment is probably the major building block to getting to those goals, when, whether it be just be, you know what, well, mate, I want to, I want to nut myself down as a solid third grader this year, or, or I've got someone who who says I want to go and play super rugby. Um, my the aim, my service is to try and get them to that. Um, yeah. And the standards, I think, you know, is a huge building block of any team. You, you without without some sort of standard and something to hold yourself accountable towards, you probably won't achieve those goals. And then, um, you know, I just want to make our guys as, as skilled as possible. And, and I mean. You've played with and against me. You you, you know that I, I cannot sit there and preach to anyone about skill because I didn't have a lot. Um, me but neither. <laughs> I, I we've got some we've got you know we've got Stephen Jones at our club who is a catch pass guru and it's such a blessing to have him there and and I can just see guys improving under his tutelage. Um, so whether why might not come directly from me. Um, being able to facilitate their up their up uptaking skill um, through someone like him is it's massive. What surprised you about stepping up into the role as a head coach? Uh, so far, it's just how little rugby I get to do. Um, I I I rarely find the time so far to sit down and watch much of the game. I probably got through an hour of our. Um, of our internal trial um, of, of cutting, like actually legitimately cutting clips up and getting them ready to send out to people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I thought I'd have so much more time for that side of thing, and I'd be able to, I'd be able to watch also all the Six Nations games and watch the Super Rugby games, and then pick up bits. And I just haven't had a chance to do any of that yet. Um, I don't think and- you're on your own just quietly, mate. I, I, <laughs> getting to getting to know a lot of the head coaches in the Shoot Shield, I think that's a very common thing. Yeah, um, and and but it's it's not to say that the stuff I'm doing isn't important towards you know like I, I was speaking to Crystal Luz yesterday. Um, he, he was having much the same problem as me in that he's spending a lot of his time being a real estate agent, trying to find apartments and things like that. And and you've got to do it because one year we we care for our players and we don't want them to be. Want them to be comfortable and housed and safe, and um, but but the the other edge of the sword is I want them to be that one because I care for them. The two because if they don't, they won't perform for us. Um, and so there's a 
there's a selfish bit in, in it as well is that I want you housed and safe because it's going to give you your best performance for our club. Yeah. No, that's, uh, I, I, th- I think it's interesting to point that out because um, I, I feel like once you get to the professional level of a game, it's probably more X's and O's, still be a, a huge amount of people management and, and the off-field stuff. But at this level of the game, the shoot shield level of the game, seems to me just as an observer of head coaches, obviously I haven't been one, that the biggest part of it is the human side of it, the building of the club, the community, the culture, engaging with all the people off the field and that the X's and O's might be the smallest part of the job and trying to work out how to balance that because at the end of the day, we get judged on our X's and O's, but all that other stuff's important as well. Absolutely. And, and I think one of the best things I did initially was I, I probably, we did our offices weren't, we didn't have offices yet, which which worked worked to our advantage in that when I first started, I met close to 40 players just for coffee, just for coffee shops. Um, kept Majors Bay Road afloat with my coffee bills. Um, but it just meant we could, I could sit down in an informal environment and, and talk to guys. And we barely even spoke about footy. You know, like it was just a good chance to get to know people and, and understand what what constraints they're going to have on them, why 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 there's going to be moments during the year where, oh, look, you know, I've got this going on in my life. This is why I can't make training here and there. And we weren't even talking about styles of footy or what you bring to a game or what your skills are. We didn't even get a chance to cover that. And I kind of, I'm kind of glad we didn't because I, yeah. I, I really wanted to go into this year with no preconceived ideas on anybody. Um, <clears throat> and so having that little period was was great not having an office like while it was not ideal in that I didn't have anywhere to put my feet up at the end of the day I, I'd drive over there every day and just meet people and talk to people how do you balance the fun element because to me as you said there's guys who are third or fourth graders who who want to get fit they want to be a part of a great community they want to win and get better and then you've got aspirational professionals or in some cases, full-on professionals who will come back into programs. How do you, how do we get that right in the shoot shield? Because to me, I've seen it. I've seen it swing a number of different directions. Where for a period it was two nights a week. You you know you drink together Saturday, Sunday, sometimes Monday, and it was a great time. And now it's it's become very professional, serious. Everyone's GPSing, tracking their meters. You know you. I reckon most first grade shoot shield players would be doing something every day. But at the end of the day, we play rugby for fun. How do we balance that? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. I think um, I think at the end of the day, we've still got to understand that the whole reason why any of us got into rugby was for that side of it. Um and I don't, I don't think necessarily we need to make training this jovial, um, easy. No, I still don't mind it being jovial. I just don't want it to be easy. I don't think we necessarily need to go easy at training to go, oh, these guys aren't having enough fun. We need to, we need to, we need to chuck a chuck a game in here because they look like they're not having fun. We, you know, we're there to we're there to get stuff done at training. Um, but you can you can definitely set a tone at training, um, a tone of you know acceptance of of, of, a, of a stuff up versus uh 
a blow up you know that's that that can change someone's someone's value of of, of perception of either having fun or not at training and, and you're doing exactly the same stuff but how you respond to any adversity within the training session um can affect whether they're having fun or not um but i think like the social aspect's got to stay otherwise we'll, we'll lose 80 percent of our players we'll, we, we can't we can't expect we'll, we'll keep it we'll keep the guys top end guys who are, who are going for professional contracts but at the end of the day there's still three teams that aren't getting any match payments and they're they're there one to better themselves as players and humans but two to maintain a connection with people and if we lose the people connection then what's the point <laughs> yeah i think that was really pointed out during the covid period is is during that time we didn't have that human interaction and then when it's come back i think that's kind of changed things a little bit and the other thing i i think is i'm convinced of this is that even even a fourth grader finds it quite motivating improving themselves as a rugby player so being able to facilitate that i th- at, you know Improving is enjoyable, I believe. Absolutely, and absolutely, and and, and oh, I think back some of my most enjoyable moments as a coach. It'd be, you know, in the preseason periods when you're running through your rotations, and you you might have your you know some of your top squad groups rotate through to, through to your block, and they're just working to upskill a skill they're already good at. Yeah. But then you get some of the lower grade guys come through and they're learning their skill for the first time. And you see this click and they go, oh my gosh, you know, like, oh, I get, I get why we're doing this now. And it's this light bulb moment for them. And you go, well, that's why I coach. Like, it wasn't, yeah. like, wasn't so much to see player X upskilling himself on something he's already pretty good at and, and then go on to the next drill. And, and it's that moment where you see this light bulb go off in someone. And um, yeah, so some of those moments were fantastic. Do you do you have mentors? Like, do you do you believe in mentors? I've talked to a few guys about it, and and some have formal, some have like informal mentors where they'll they'll study like someone's career and from a distance, and but that but then there's guys who literally have people that they talk to all the time. Some guys just have like a community that they bounce things off, who are you know fellow coaches that they compete against, and, and you know just having that comradeship and and sort of shared experience has been very beneficial for them do you do you have anything like that do you believe in that yeah very much so um i i i wouldn't say that i've got a formal mentor per se but um you know like i sort of take mentorship as as the ability to to chat chat to you about some scrummaging points or then i can call paulie up and go mate um this, this is this is what I'm having an issue with my mall. What do you what do you think about it? And then I can call um, Benny Moen up about exits, and 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 it's using you know sure I'm using con- my connections, but and they're not formal mentors, but I can sit there and, and say get ideas from people um, that I wouldn't have otherwise had had I not made that phone call. So I guess and effectively they're mentoring me. Um, one yeah. one fantastic um, thing I've been able to do this year is is catch up with Joe Barricat, who was was the head coach last season, um, understands the place really well, knows the players really well. We, we've caught up a few times and I can just run him through my program, see what he thinks. Um, you know, he's been a professional coach for 20 years, has seen it all, 
Um, and he's and he can sit there and say, "Have you considered this? Do you think that?" And, and that, I guess, that would be as close to a, a formal mentor as I've got, and especially in a West Harbour sense, because he knows the place so well. Um, you know, we're texting often. Um, he's been fantastic for me. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Having people to bounce things off is just so valuable. So I, I think. I've only been coaching. I really consider this my first full year of coaching. The last couple of years, I don't really count. But having the ability to talk scrums with Dan Palmer, you know, go through lineouts with Dan McKellar, talk malls and lineouts with Paulie, and seeing what they're doing, it's incredibly valuable. Incredibly valuable. And that's where rugby is good. You know, like you make these connections, and mo- a lot of those guys are, you know, people you've played against, but still so open and so happy. You know, we we got to. Um, through a little link the, the, the Brumbies women are, are training out of our training centre we got to go down and, and spend a day down the Brums and, and just watch and learn and be in every meeting and just watching up. Laurie Fisher work is just amazing oh mate great and the simplicity with which he does it he just has the same point and he says it 56 times per session that was the biggest thing I learned when I went down there is that if you don't understand the messaging that they're trying to get across, then you just should not be there because yeah. they they go through it in the meeting, video yep. and whiteboard. They send it out pre-session. They go over and over and over in the session. Then at the end of the session, the leaders will reinforce the the messaging. So yeah, that was the biggest takeaway for me. I thought it was so impressive. Oh, and it's simple, isn't it? Like it's yeah, like that, and that's. A trap we can fall into. Sometimes I overcomplicate things, and it's not not that complicated. What What did you make of last year's shoot shield? Uh, man, I, I I loved it. I loved the fact that that you couldn't plan around a week where you could probably have a down week. I love that. I, I think that's that's awesome, and that's so good. We've got to that point. Um, it was it was. Probably stressful, you know. We, I mean, I look at our, ourselves last year at the Rats, where we're going into round eighteen against against West Harbour, who have nothing to play for and um, have had an indifferent season. We we win that game, we finish third, get two bites for the cherry in the semis, and West Harbour come out and put us to the sword. And it was not that we played poorly; it's just they played extremely well, and that's awesome. That's great. Like I, I, I don't know what it would have served us had we gone out and won forty nil. Like probably nothing. Um, but in, in turn, we got we got given a lesson um, by a bunch of guys playing really good footy, and and that, and that was every week. There'd be there'd be upsets every week, which I don't know how how long we can keep calling them upsets for because possibly in the past they can be classed as an upset, but if it's happening so often, it starts to become a pattern rather than an upset. I've got a feeling this year is going to be very similar, mate. Very similar. Yeah, I think so too. What What do you think of the key elements required to win not only games of rugby but competitions? Uh, competitions is is consistency. I think. Um, like I, I like to use the analogy that if you're like as much you know I'm bringing violence into it, but if you're choking someone. Um, if you've got a constant seven on their neck, they're never going to feel comfortable and never going to be able to breathe properly. But if you squeeze them for a 10 and then let it go to a two, 
they'll find their feet, they'll find their rhythm, they'll start to breathe properly again. Um, so you just need to keep people at a constant seven the whole time. Um, we just it's but that that goes within a game through and also into a season. Like we just need to you need to people need to be under constant pressure. Um, and it's just the ability to maintain that week after week because it's a long grinding season. Um, 18 back-to-back rounds with guys who are also working full-time jobs. Um, it's the yeah, it's the ability to maintain that consistently that it'll help you win a comp. What do you, what did you learn from 2017? I meant to ask you about that. Obviously, a very special year for the Rats. Um, what do you, what are your key memories from that year? What did you learn from that year? Um, it was funny for me because I was going into a really established group. And, and guys who had come from, it probably reinforces the, the value of a good, good, good Colts program for me is because most of those guys have come through Colts, done done their time through through grade, sort of go from lean year 2015, better year 2016 to winning a comp in 2017. And just it was just the same core nucleus the whole way through. And, and you know, DC came in and added, added a bit of, um, added a bit of, cream on top with guys like Solosi and and um, you know Sam Thompson and guys who came in and really added to that group but um, the core nucleus was why that group won um, uh, you know obviously there's a like there was the tragedy of Lockie and and yes it, it definitely bound the group together and, and gave us a, almost a higher purpose but um, I think that group was incredibly close knit already, um, and and it just and, and I'm not saying we wouldn't have won without it because I I genuinely think that that group had the talent and the tightness to do it regardless. Um, but once that happened, we just weren't going to let that season slip by without turning it into something special. Um, and it was a it was a really for me personally, I was. I was in my second year of the police um, working night shifts. You know, so often I'd go to do a night shift on Friday night, get a couple of hours sleep in the morning, go and play and go and do another night shift. And so um, it was a particularly tough year for me and, and to the point where, you know, first 10 rounds I was probably starting when then Sammy Thompson came in, took my spot, and rightfully so because he was doing far better than me. Um, but I, I could add... Probably what I could add would be some experience in the back twenty minutes, um, which is very valuable. Yeah, which is just come on and calm things down, and, and um, yeah, it was a very special, very special moment. And, and you know, I'll, I'll never forget um, Wardy in that last after that last scrum, and he just, you know, like every bit of energy just going out of his body, he just collapsed, and um, yeah, people just got around him, and it was, it was a huge moment for him and his family. I I think uh, most people watching that game really felt happy for you guys. I certainly did. Is there anything that you used to be sure about that you've now changed your mind on? And you can take that any direction you want, mate. Uh, yeah, look, I, 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 I thought I'd be a career police officer. Um, up until five months ago, I probably still thought that. And, and all of a sudden, here I am almost out of the police and and I've moved on to coaching um, whether 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 that only lasts for two years or not but I, I never thought I'd not be in the police um, I'd sort of 
I had my career path plotted out. I, I knew where I wanted to get to. I'd sort of been doing the, you know, doing our courses and stuff. I worked through that to try and push me that way. Um, so, yeah, I, I, that's probably the thing I was sure of, which I'm definitely not sure of anymore. What What is being in the police force taught you about human beings about life it's it's a really funny one um generally in the police like if you're interacting with someone they're having a bad moment like whether you whether they're under arrest for doing something bad or they're a victim or um they're under the influence of drugs like they did whatever it may be you ne- uh, the reason you're interacting with people is because they're having a, they're having one of their worst moments of their life, and you, and you go from that to someone else to someone else to someone else, and you realise it gives you a really big um, insight into people's lives, and and makes and gave me an opportunity to, to reflect on how lucky I am in many ways, um, and yeah, that's. And you also, I learned, I probably learned through the police how to have hard conversations. Um, you know, it, it's a big thing to tell someone you're about to take away their freedom, um, whether, whether they deserve it or not. You're about to take away someone's freedom for whether it be for a night, for a couple of hours, for a number of years. Um, it's a big thing to to tell someone that's going to, that's probably their path. Um, it's a really big thing to tell loved ones of their family members have passed away um and so you know i I go into going to the coaching role now and you know people say talk about hard conversations and i just i just don't think those conversations are hard it's just it's sitting there going mate this is the reason we've made this decision i'm asking you to get on with it um yeah which is which is had i not had those other conversations uh other had to have those other conversations through the police um I think I would have found that extremely difficult. Um, whereas now I've, I've got a bit of a reality check on what is it, what, what actually is a hard conversation and what isn't. Mate, that's fantastic, fantastic advice for anyone listening. Do you do much personal development on the rugby front? How do you attack learning new things? How, how, um, have you, how do you go about thinking about it? Because you're obviously, you know, forwards, formerly a forwards coach, still a forwards coach. Now you've got to care and learn about every area of the game. Maybe not learn. You probably have had a great understanding of a lot of different areas, but how have you attacked it? Um, yeah, personal developments. I've got huge intentions to do a lot of personal development. I haven't in the. I've only been in the role for five months, um, so I haven't had a huge amount of opportunity. I mean, I'd love to get in and just sponge from Paulie and Darren and and um, Gilly and those guys and just. Soak it all in. I'd love to get up to Queensland, go and chat to Dan McKellar and and Benny Moen and and guy and and Mick Heenan, the guys who who've been in, like Mick Heenan. I'd love to pick his brain because he's been in Clubland for the last however long, and he's just cracked into the Reds. and And it's more to pick his brain around Clubland than than the professional environment. Um, those sorts of guys, I really aim to get in and do some PD with them. Um, it just hasn't come to fruition yet. I, 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 it's another thing I'd imagine being able to get out to the Waratahs far more often than I have been able to, um, but I still intend to. How much do you lean on your assistant coaches? 
uh, far far more than I'd, I'd envisaged. Um, I sort of thought the way it'd shape out is is I would have an overall idea of what I wanted to them to achieve, and I'd get them to put it into place. Um, whereas the way it's worked out, I've I've probably had to say, look, you pick up this ball and you run with it. This is your baby. You you do with it what you want, and. Um, I'm just backing them entirely um, because I, I sort of think if, you know, while I initially thought I'd have some, like, directional say over it, why did, why did I hire you if if I'm not prepared to back you fully? Um, yeah. And so that's sort of the approach I'm taking with it. Um, obviously, they, they do run everything through me, but there hasn't become a moment where I'm like, no, mate, I'm not happy with that. Um, I sort of... And and I, I also feel like who am I to who am I to tell you when your your speciality is attack or your speciality is defence that that it's right or wrong if if you believe this is the right way let's jump on the bus and and we'll we'll back it and we'll we'll sell it as much as we can. I love that, mate. One thing I want to start bringing up, and I've started recently with these podcasts, is talking about self care for coaching and just people in general because um, I feel like I'd read some meme or some quote the other day saying business leaders and coaches will do anything to help their people but they won't do anything to help themselves and i think that the ability to help others um, really comes from you helping yourself first and that was a big lesson from my year last year Uh, we talked a little bit about that offline but you know something that i'm putting a lot of emphasis on this year is making sure I, i train most days making sure i don't you know, get blackout drunk every weekend, maybe once a month, you know, doing things that actually make me feel good so that I can help, you know, the people in my life that need me and that rely on me. How, how are you with self-care? Do you, do you think it's important? Is it something that you spend time on? How do you reflect on it? Uh, yeah, look, I, I, I'm really big on it and, and it's, I probably haven't even consciously realized I'm big on it until I sit down and go, you know, I, I, I feel my frustration level building so much that I have to, like you said, I have to go, I have to go and train or I have to go and surf or do something because I, I my wife just says, go for surf. She just go, go. I can, she can see it building in me. Um, and I feel, and I feel almost bad about doing it because it's an, like what I'm doing for work is an incredibly selfish um vocation that takes me away from my family a lot and then i and then i need to go and go and train on top of that which is again taking away from family time and i need to go for a surf which is again a, a solid a solitary activity um which i but i need it um i'm probably better at taking it now in times i'm probably more able to take it now in times where it's less impacting on the family whereas before when i was in the police and coaching I wasn't able to. I'd have to just take it when I when I get the opportunity. Um, but I, I'm very big on it, and you know, I, I've got this monthly um, monthly membership to do these floats at um, at a place called City Cave, where it's you know these Epsom salt baths. Where... How does that How does that go? Is that Is that the sensory deprivation one where you're just floating and there's you can't see it's... or hear anything? Yeah, exactly right. It's completely black. They they play music for 10 minutes at the start, sort of get you in the zone, and then you just float there in the water for 50 minutes and they chuck some music on at the end. Um, you know, it's 
I think it's valuable. I'm just, the first time I did it, I got into a real little Zen state, but I hadn't started coaching at West Harbour at that point. Um, now I have, I, I get down into it and I, I'm just struggling to make my mind stop, but I still think it's important to try because um, I'm still taking an hour out no matter no matter whether I'm, I'm stopping thinking or not, I'm still making that conscious effort to stop for an hour, um, which because there's, there's always going to be something to do, right? There's always something to do, but it'll it'll still be there at the back end of that hour. And it'll get done too. Yeah, yeah, it'll get done. I mean, I, I, I find some, you know, from 9.30 at night when my wife goes to bed till 11 p.m. is some of my most productive work done because um, my daughter's gone to bed, my wife's gone to bed, we've watched our show, time to rip it and get a bit of work done. Um, but it's actually a really valuable little period. So, yeah, maybe from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. where I could have been doing that work, I've actually stopped and gone and done the float or gone for a surf or gone to the gym. I'm still getting it done. It's just later on that night. Love it, mate. A couple of rapid fires and then I'll get you out of here, mate. This has been amazing. Do you read much? Do you listen to podcasts? Do you watch documentaries? Do you watch movies? Do you watch TV shows? Is there anything you'd recommend to the audience that you enjoy, whether educational or entertaining or mate i i am i'm i'm a huge geek um when it comes to star wars lord of the rings all of that sort of stuff i, I love it I'll, anything anything in that realm um game of thrones all of that sort of stuff the last of us i just love to get away from life and and that sort of stuff takes you away from life like i can just i've i mean you've probably you've seen my my email handle, it's got Skywalker in it. It's its everything, you know, I've been a huge Star Wars geek forever. I've, I've watched every show. I've listened to podcasts on it. Um, it's, yeah, I, I use my time to get away from the world with stuff like that. And I, I think I just, yeah, I really enjoy that stuff. Um, the one book I'm reading is a Star Wars book. It's been sitting on my bedside table since I went to Fiji. It's probably got, probably got about 40 pages to go three years ago. Um but that's the last time I read a book was a Star Wars book. It's just more to get away and escape. Um, it's um, it's funny. I I had Aaron Walsh on, who's uh, the Chiefs and the Scotland mental skills coach. Fantastic yep. guy, like amazing. And, and I said the same thing to him. He doesn't he doesn't want to do anything educational once he's done his job. He just wants to switch off. So he listens to entertaining podcasts, um, anything to get away from life. Pretty similar. Yeah, I, and I like in terms of podcasts, I like I, I really enjoy listening to yours, and I listen to Eddie's one on the way to work. And being being you know, I get two hours in the car every day now. Um, that gives me time to to listen to those two. But outside of that, I'm listening to you know pop culture podcasts. Like it's all you know, it's fluff. It's got nothing to do with anything, and it's just a way of tuning out. Um, you know, I'll probably make three or four phone calls in that car ride too, which are work related, but then. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't have anything deep or insightful to give you there other than no, I just, that's I fine, just, mate. I just like to geek out, mate. We, we all have our ways of escaping from the world, mate. Uh, we're both young coaches, so this might not be generally an appropriate question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What's a common mistake you see from young coaches? Yeah, I, I definitely would 100% class myself as a young coach. Um, I'd, I'd say it's overcomplicated. And again, it's mistakes I've made. Um, you know, you're trying to trying to almost prove your knowledge. So you you make this complicated drill or this complicated 
um, play that can be done in a far simpler, far more effective way. But you're trying to almost say, look, look what I know, look what I've, look what I've, look what I've got out of this course I just did, or whatever it may be. Um, that that's a big thing. It's just, just there isn't really a need to overcomplicate things um, because you're going to have a variety of, like I said, you're talking about a Ford pack. You're going to have a variety of learners in amongst that Ford pack. So the simpler you make it to to get your end result why not do it the simplest way? Like if, if your end result is a strong mall, do you really need to do three slips and a and a um, three slips and a and a, a a fake jump somewhere else to get to the mall, or can you just throw directing more from that? Um, yeah, it's it's about you, you know you're trying to get to an end result, and the easiest way there is generally the simplest way there. Wouldn't agree more. What makes a great coach? Um, empathy. Empathy, definitely. Um, I think the ability to see a person and not a player. Um, a strong, a strong tactical awareness of, of what your team is capable of. Um, and I think you just got to be a good bloke. Like I really think that's, that's a huge part of the job. Is just being have a, have kindness in your heart and be a good person. Love that, mate. Last question. If you could tell 18-year-old Cam Trelaw one thing, what would it be? Uh, I've heard a few people say this in this question for you, and it's 100% applicable to me, is you're nowhere near as good as you think you are. Um, you know, I, I look look back at my 18-year-old self. I just finished Australian School Boys. Um, you know, back then, you, you like... You think it's you think it's because everyone wants you to go play for them because they think you're a good player, but it's really they they're just trying to build their numbers. But they're they're sending you they're sending you this blank. But back back when we were leaving school, it was pre email, and you know you get all the clubs would send you a letter, just a, a, a form letter to your school, and say dear, and they just write your name in in pen in pen, and they give you the same feel they're giving everyone else, and say come and play for Eastwood, come and play for Rads or whatever it may be, but it gives you it gives you as a young fellow a really overinflated opinion of yourself, and and so I probably got to Warringah. Um, I played my first trial match on the. There used to be two ovals out the front, um, and I played on the far oval out the front um, against Easts, and got absolutely wailed by somebody. And then as I placed the ball someone else has absolutely shredded my back with their boots and that just maybe gave me a real quick realisation that I'm nowhere near as good as I think I am and I'm in a whole different um, level. So, yeah, it'll be that. Right. We're never as good or as bad as we think we are. Yeah, yeah most likely. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm extremely harsh on myself, so um, I, I hope that's not the case because if I'm as bad as I think I am, then... Yeah, I'm in trouble. Well, I've made a very, very similar to you. I've got a very bad habit of comparing myself to the best of the best, and I'm clearly not that yet. Hopefully, I'll get there one day. But uh, so you're always pretty much in the middle, mate. That that's a fantastic way to end. Thank you so much for this. I've enjoyed the hell out of this conversation, mate. Thank you. No, mate. Thank you, and uh, I've really enjoyed your podcast, mate. So keep it keep it cranking. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. If you haven't already, please give us a review on Spotify or Apple. Please subscribe, like, share, and tell a friend. And 
we will be back soon. Thanks very much for listening.